Well, good evening, everybody. It's such a privilege, isn't it, to be able to worship and sing praises to God together. It was so encouraging to me just then, just so beautiful and touching. We have a wonderful, wonderful God. And uh, we heard about um, the Fun Run Fun Day in the notices, and I've seen the bunting. It's beautiful. It's branded. I don't know if you've noticed uh, since coming back to church, uh, some of the changes that Mark, uh, admin team lead, has been making around the premises. And uh, my favorite thing, I think, are the, uh, the Bible verses, which are in the toilets. Has anybody noticed them? And I like to joke uh, that they're there to strengthen our faith so that uh, streams of living water may flow out from within us. <laughs> Mark has also uh, brought a teapot uh, for the office, which is much appreciated. And it just feels more proper than, uh, you know, having to squeeze the tea bag with the back of a spoon. But it's not quite as sophisticated as the tea uh, that I drank in Japan, where sometimes we even have to wear like a kimono and you have to sit really uncomfortably on the floor. Well, uh, Sen no Rikyu, it's a mouthful. It's a, a guy from Japan. He's very famous, one of the most famous uh, historical tea people in Japan. And uh, tea houses in Japan are often set within uh, pretty gardens. Has anybody ever been to a tea house in, in Japan? The beautiful, oh, Stefan, yes. And uh, people can admire a beautiful view as they sip their drinks. And uh, one spring morning uh, in the 16th century, Riku was raking his grounds uh, in preparation for the arrival of his guests. And he was struck with an overwhelming sense of dissatisfaction at how pristine and manufactured the garden looked. So he went over to a cherry tree, which was in full bloom, and he shook it so that the petals fell haphazardly onto the floor. And thus was born the concept and the philosophy now known as wabi-sabi. It's a fun word to say, isn't it? Wabi-sabi. <laughs> now, uh, wabi-sabi is not to be confused with wasabi, <laughs> which uh, is the green horseradish-like paste that if you've ever eaten sushi, you will know about because it gives you uh, sharp pain up your nose. <laughs> Does anybody like sushi, by the way? Oh, I love it. It's so good. Uh, no, wabi-sabi is not wasabi. Wabi-sabi, however, is a mindset uh, that embraces and finds beauty and meaning in that which is imperfect, in that which is difficult, and in that which is even painful. It's the very opposite of our instant, mass-produced, photoshopped, and if it's broken, throw it away and get a new one culture. Wabi-sabi is your favorite item of clothing, even though it's got a hole in it. It's a lone flower appearing through a crack in the pavement. It's celebrating a wedding in the middle of a war zone. It's a scar that tells the story of tears turned into hope. In spiritual terms, we could call it redemption. And we worship the wabi-sabi God who redeems, who doesn't abandon, but rather rescues and restores. And the darkness of suffering is often the backdrop, the canvas upon which God chooses to paint and to display his light and his love 
both to us and through us for his glory. Another recent addition to the office that Mark has made is a clock for the wall. We didn't have a clock, believe it or not. And maybe it's a hint for us not to be late to staff prayers, which often we are. But when he put the battery in, we soon realized that it didn't work properly. In fact, the clock even went backwards. What kind of clock is that? <laughs> if only we could turn back time. But we can't. Life goes on. Despite our mistakes, despite our mess, despite our misery, there are no dress rehearsals. The Bible talks a lot about suffering. It's a very difficult but real issue in our lives. And it talks about it in its many different contexts. Persecution, sin, bereavement, failure, anxiety, sickness, lack, loss, injustice, hardship. It's a long, long, long list, isn't it? And we don't all experience suffering the same way or at the same time or to the same degree. But we are, though, Jesus said, to expect it. He said quite plainly, in the world you will have tribulation. And so when trouble does come knocking on our door, well, why not me? As Christians, we can be utterly realistic about hardship. And yet we can also be hopeful in our afflictions. Because ultimately... They are light and momentary. There will be a heaven. We trust that this life, this skin and bones is not all there is. And so we, we long for and we look forward to glory. But our faith in Christ also holds promise for the here and now. The Apostle Paul wrote, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's not that everything that happens to us is good, nor that life is better when we suffer, but that when we do, we can trust that God works present tense good for those who love him, even in and out of the most awful of experiences. I remember my nan telling me that it was obvious that I'd never lived through a war. Uh, one time when I went to uh, the bin to throw away some leftover food. And she had a point, but I still don't think she should have kept moldy bre uh, bread in the fridge. <laughs> God never lets anything in our lives go to waste, but he redeems it all for good. It was not God who shook the cherry tree, proverbially, assuming that it was a cherry that Adam and Eve ate. Probably wasn't. But we worship him who not only planned for our pain, but presides over it. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. That doesn't mean that God morally approves of or is the direct cause of most things that happen. But it does mean that he permits and is therefore the ultimate cause of everything. He is God. And even though we can't fully comprehend how he does it, God governs all things 
according to his wise and holy purposes, without in any way ever being the author of sin or being uncompassionate or negating our responsibility and accountability to him for the very real choices that we make. And that's why we can trust in him. And the fact that God oftentimes neither shields us from nor removes suffering is not proof of his absence, indifference, or inability in our lives, but rather of his purpose in our pain. So we're going to be looking at the next section uh, in the book of Job that focuses in uh, on the speech of a rather mysterious person called Elihu, or Elihu. Maybe it's Elihu, Elijah, Elisha. I'll go Elihu, it's easier. (laughs) In the first part, uh, we considered the causes of our sufferings. As we looked on in horror as Job, a prosperous man whom God lauded, was afflicted by Satan at God's own permission. Job never understood what brought about his adversity. And much of the time, neither do we in particular terms. The devil wanted to prove that Job's worship was fickle, but despite the loss of his children, his livelihood, and his health, Job kept his faith and revered God. And in the last message, we thought about how we can find comfort in our suffering. Job's three friends proposed that he was being punished by God. In refuting their accusations, though, Job occasionally overstepped the mark in claiming to be sinless and in concluding that God hated him and was mocking his calamity. In pouring out his complaints, though, Job came to realize that God was not his enemy, even though he did not expect to experience God's presence or his being at peace with God until after he had died. Our comfort in suffering is found in the God of all comfort and overflows that we may comfort others, hopefully better than Job's friends did. And even though Job didn't realize it at the time, God is with us in our pain. Job was not being punished for sin, nor had God abandoned him. But by the end of chapter 31, he was still none the wiser as to God's purposes in allowing suffering in the lives of the righteous. Enter the stage, Elihu. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, in our live stream, Donald showed us some photos or some pictures uh, from times gone by of people. And he asked us to guess whether or not uh, we thought that they looked trustworthy. Now, uh, Kath was with Donald at the time, and uh, she decided that this guy, Edward Jenner, the inventor of the world's first ever vaccine, who is estimated to have prevented the deaths of about half a billion people thus far, she thought he was a shady guy (laughs) because of his well-manicured eyebrows. (laughs) Well, we don't have a picture of Elihu, so we can't make such judgments about his appearance. But it's fair to say that over the ages, he has raised more than a few eyebrows. Have you ever been in a group conversation and suddenly somebody else jumps in who you didn't even realize was there or had been listening? Well, that's Elihu. 
Job's three friends were actually four. And now that everyone has shut up, Elihu decides to tell Job what he thinks. So that's uh, Elihu, I think, in the picture, the one on the left. And history has judged him in two opposing lights. The most common, it seems, is that he was an arrogant youth who basically just repeated what had already been said. And so we can skip over his words and get to the good part. And it's true that Elihu says some things which sound similar to the three friends and are difficult to understand. We're also told numerous times that he was angry, really, really angry. Uh, He came from the land of Buzz, but don't think Buzz like you. Elihu is more like the Hulk. He's enraged. Interestingly, Madeline uh, did some research after this morning's uh, service, and she noticed that he was from the family of Ram, and she says that if you look in the lineage in the Bible, Elihu is actually a direct ancestor of Jesus. But that's an aside. Anyway, anger is not usually a good thing, is it? But sometimes, even in Jesus' case, we see it can be motivated by right reasons. Which brings us on to the alternative view, the one that I'm persuaded of, and it's that Elihu is essentially a good character who offers something new and meaningful to the discussion. He claims to speak by God and for God, and he functions almost like God's warm-up act, because after he finishes, God immediately shows up And he mirrors very closely the last two chapters of Elihu's speech. Even though he was younger than Job and his friends, Elihu rightly claimed that wisdom comes not with age, but by God's spirit. Nonetheless, he showed respect for his elders in letting them speak first. He also sought to show no partiality or flattery. He admitted his own weakness And even though he criticized Job and his three friends alike, none of them say anything in response to Elihu after he finishes. And even more interestingly, neither does God. When God finally does speak up, Elihu is the only person, Job included, whom God neither confronts nor rebukes. And that silence, I think, speaks volumes. So what is it that Elihu may have gotten right? In a nutshell, I believe it's that he proposes that God uses suffering for his redemptive purposes. If you want to read all of Elihu's speech, it's found in chapters 32 to 37. But I'm going to be focusing on a part of chapter 33, where Elihu begins to take issue with Job. He says this, Surely you've spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you for God is greater than man. At my family, we used to drink orange juice made from pure concentrates, you know, the cheaper type that you get in the carton. Uh, But recently, it was out of stock on the shelves at the supermarket. 
uh, we go to. And so we got the freshly squeezed one. Once you switch, there's no going back. Now, at first glance, they look the same, but when you give them both a shake, the pieces in the freshly squeezed juice rise to the surface. In the same way, even the best of people are not perfectly pure. And sometimes it takes a difficult situation, a shaking, if you like, for this to become apparent. Pressure brings things out of us, good and bad. And in Job's case, his suffering revealed a remarkable and true faith in God that refused to let go of him, even in the grips of such tragedy and confusion. But there did remain a residue of hidden pride in his heart. And Elihu says it is this that God is confronting. God is not ignoring Job, but talking to and teaching him through his troubles. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. Now, we don't know exactly when uh, the book of Job is set, but much of the Bible hadn't even yet happened, let alone been written. So they obviously didn't have God's word as we do today. And God sometimes spoke to people through dreams and visions. In a dream, in a vision of the night when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked, disciplined with pain on his bed, with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. Elihu doesn't mince his words, does he? But I think he makes an important point. Now, I use the uh, English Standard Version, ESV, Bible, but several other translations choose the word disciplined rather than rebuked. The meaning here is that uh, of correction rather than punishment. We know that Elihu did not think that Job was being punished because he'd already dismissed uh, the three friends who had made the very claim. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Elihu is saying to Job that God purifies and protects his people's lives through their taking heed of his word and through suffering. And even Job, the man whom God himself had put on a pedestal, was in absolute need of God's intervention to keep his soul from eternally perishing. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, humanity has never been able to be right with God through our ever trying to be good enough to warrant his acceptance. Not even Job could claim to be sinless. From the first animal killed as a substitute to cover their naked shame in the garden, God's one scarlet thread of salvation for all peoples and for all times, which has always been by grace and through faith for all who will believe, was seen weaving in and out of history promised time and time again through types and shadows that gradually became clearer, eventually pointing to a saviour, to God himself, 
who would be born into the world that he had created to live the life that we never could so that he could die in our place, taking God's punishment for our sin upon himself and rising from the dead to usher in the dawn of a new creation that we may have life eternal, a restored relationship with our maker, now by faith and to be fully realized forevermore in heaven. And we live on the other side of the cross, but those in the Old Testament didn't have the full picture that we do today. And just as there's much that we don't know about the eternity that awaits us, so Elihu goes on to the best of his understanding, I believe, to point Job to the saviour that for them was still yet to come into the world. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he's merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. These are incredible words. A mediator, a ransom, one who declares what is right, who is merciful, a deliverer, a redeemer, a restorer of righteousness, not repaying sins, the giver of joy, the light of life. Is Jesus not all of these things, the one and only savior of the world? Elihu wants Job to know that his suffering is neither hopeless nor meaningless when considered in the light of eternity. And this doesn't justify or explain Job's loss. But God is redeeming his terrible pain in refining Job's faith and humbling him from his sense of pride. God was not a tyrant, but was working to keep Job from far greater eternal suffering so that he may one day be fully restored to joy. And Job stays silent. He doesn't protest. He doesn't respond as he'd done before with the other friends. And after God then speaks to him, Job repents. He says, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Now in the year 2022, suffering is still very much a real and painful experience. We don't need much convincing of that, do we? Going back to the passage we looked at earlier in Romans, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But what is this good? What is this purpose? Well, it tells us if we go on to the next verse. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The good God works in all things is to make his people more like Christ. One of the most common questions that Christians ask, and I've asked it too, is what is God's will for my life? And one sure way to answer this is this is the will of God, your sanctification. God's purpose is to make us more progressively holy 
distinctive that we better image his son. Now, many people in this world claim to have faith in Jesus, but the evidence that our faith is real is that we don't give up believing and that we become more like him. Because he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It's a promise. And it's not just suffering that God uses for this end. He works all things together for good. That's why we're also told that it is God's will for us to give thanks in all circumstances. We can learn in plenty and in want, in sunshine and in rain. The Bible makes special mention, though, of the productive quality that our bitter experiences can have. When life is problem-free, we are perhaps more inclined to forget God. But a tree's roots are made to go deeper in storms. And not that I know much about this, but muscle grows stronger when it is torn. Likewise, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. If we think about the fruit of the Spirit, we need their reciprocal in order to fully express them. For joy to be truly joyful, it needs to encounter sorrow. Martin Luther King said, only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. Does this mean, though, that those who suffer the most are in more need of transformation? Not at all. None of us is the finished article. We shouldn't compare our suffering because pain is pain. But if we must compare, then let us look to the suffering of Christ and humbly consider how God wants to use our difficulties to shape us. Elihu mentioned pain that leads people to loathe bread and the choicest food. And Jesus said, life is more than food. Elihu implies, I think, that suffering can wean us from superficially living only for that which can satisfy temporarily. God uses hardships as a reality check, a wake-up call to put our lives into perspective and our priorities in order. It's interesting that the persecuted church around the world, in countries like China, for example, they seem to experience such rapid flourishing and growth in spite of, or actually, is it because of the great pressure that they find themselves in? Why else would anyone follow Jesus at huge personal cost, sometimes even death, unless he was supremely valuable to them? I count everything as loss because of, the, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Jesus told a parable about the kingdom of heaven that is within us being like a pearl of great price that is worth giving up everything for. Now, when an irritant like a grain of sand gets lodged inside an oyster, it causes a wound in its flesh. And to protect itself, the oyster secretes layer upon layer of a liquid that hardens around the wound and forms a pearl. Sometimes God chooses not to remove, but to bind up our wounds and to shield our hearts, turning our tests into testimonies 
to reveal a pearl of great price. Some of you will know of Joni Tada Erickson. She became a quadriplegic after breaking her neck in a diving accident as a teenager. She struggled immensely for decades with coming to terms with this. And yet she sees God's redemptive hand at work. She says something very powerful. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And nowhere do we see this more clearly than the death of God's own son. For it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The writer of Hebrews tells us it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Wow, Jesus was perfected through suffering. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that he was sinful, for he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was sinless. But although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who will obey him. It was only in suffering that the full extent of Jesus' obedience was tested and proven to be true. And in that sense, perfected. In Job's earlier dialogue with his uh, three friends, he had claimed to be purer than he was. And he used the analogy of a refiner's fire, where metal is heated to test its purity. He said, he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. But he was not referring to God's merciful cleansing, but speaking rather arrogantly. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. Job likened himself to pure gold, but Elihu, on the other hand, compared himself in Job to common pottery. Behold, I am towards God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. God is referred to as the potter and we the clay several times in the Bible. He is God and we are not. He's the one who molds us and not the other way around. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God won't share his glory with another. And he uses pain to humble us, as he did with Job. Thomas Case once said, affliction is God's forge where he softens the iron heart. We are not the Lord, and yet we are dearly loved by God. So much so that he shines his light into our darkness, bringing the treasure of his presence into our jars of clay. Christ in us, the hope of glory. A few mo uh, months ago, Jane Sprittles, where is she? She's here tonight somewhere. Hello, Jane. As she chatted to me after the live stream, 
about a vase that she and her newly wed husband, Michael, had recently bought together, but that he had accidentally broken. Now, I'm no marriage counsellor, but as a pastoral worker, I should have just listened sympathetically and prayed, but I couldn't resist trying to fix the problem, quite literally. I said with enthusiasm, where is it? Where are these pieces? And Jane said, they're in the bin. And so the next day, Michael brought to me the retrieved pieces, and I gave them to my wife. (laughs) Now, during one of the lockdown live streams, I mentioned something called kintsugi, which is perhaps the most well-known wabi-sabi art form. And when translated from Japanese, it means restored with gold. And Georgina also did a video devotional all about it, which I highly recommend. Instead of throwing away broken ceramics, you put the pieces back together using gold to make it not only usable again, but stronger and more valuable. And instead of hiding the cracks, you highlight them as being beautiful. Now, unfortunately, uh, I couldn't afford real gold, So we had to settle for the next best thing, golden mica powder and super glue. (laughs) Now, Kimiko, my wife, had never done kintsugi before, but with her being Japanese and my being terrible at arts and crafts, it seemed only right to let her do it. (laughs) And hopefully it will be a symbol uh, to Michael and Jane of God's sufficient grace and of their faith in Christ more precious than gold. Now, yesterday was the FA Cup final, and it was contested between Michael and Jane's two teams. So with the in-house rivalry, I wasn't sure if the bars uh, would still be intact today, but I'm assured that it is. If it hadn't, though, we could have just done some more kintsugi on it. And as there are second chances in pottery, so there are second chances in people. No one is too broken for God. We may carry the scars of our hurts, but God's power is made perfect in weakness. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Like Job, we've all failed to be perfect in our suffering. We too can think that God has abandoned us and mocks at our calamity. And we too are prone to pride. But because of his great love, Christ, the only one who was sinlessly perfect, he suffered perfectly for us. Jesus actually was forsaken by his father so that we never have to be. He is our mediator, our ransom. The one who declares to us what is right, who is merciful, our deliverer, our redeemer, our restorer of righteousness. Not repaying our sins, but the giver of joy and the light of life. Suffering in the lives of God's people is never punishment. But rather, he purposes to redeem our pain. He lets nothing be wasted and works together all things for good. That we may more intimately know and make known his son in and to this suffering world. To finish, I'm going to pray the prayers of a famous song which we're going to sing in response 
called Refiner's Fire. And if you would like to, uh, you can join in with me. This is um, part of our response to God saying, yes, we want you, Lord, to purify us that we would be more like Jesus. Uh, so if you would, uh, maybe you could pray with me the words which are highlighted in yellow. Let's pray. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold and precious silver. Purify my heart. Let me be as gold, pure gold. Purify my heart. Cleanse me from within and make me holy. Purify my heart. Cleanse me from my sin deep within. Refiner's fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy, set apart for you, Lord. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my master, ready to do your will.